This is Following Jesus into a World in Crisis. I'm Andrew, and together we are exploring how we live as wise and loving neighbors in the wake of COVID-19. Now, we haven't experienced anything quite like this before, but we believe that we can find hope and peace by turning to Jesus. And with his help, we can make peace in a fearful world. Let's get into today's podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to our brand new podcast series we're calling Following Jesus into a World in Crisis. If you don't recognize my voice, I'm Andrew and I'm one of the pastors at Riverbend Church. I'm really so thrilled to be having this conversation. Um, This month has certainly not been anything like we planned. We're going to talk about that. But what we want to do is we want to talk about how do we become wise and loving neighbors in the wake of COVID-19. It's just sort of taken the world by storm. Now, I don't know how you are doing in the midst of this crisis, and I, I think of you and I pray for you often. I've certainly missed these last couple of Sundays where we haven't been able to gather as we typically do, um, and I've heard from a number of you who have lost your jobs. Uh, I've, I've heard from a number of you who work in uh, the medical field and are uh, at St. Charles and Um, are trying to contain this virus and doing what you can to serve the community. I know a number of you are first responders as well. Um, There's um, there's just uh, a number of you too who are in one of these vulnerable categories. You have a compromised immune system or you're elderly, part of these one of these um, vulnerable groups. And so what we want to do throughout this podcast is hopefully gain a bigger picture on coronavirus sort of zoom out a little bit, look at culture at large, and look at the story of God and what he's been up to in the world around us in the months and years leading up to 2020, and how God might be taking this horrendous evil and using it for his good. And if you're familiar at all with the story of the scriptures, you know that um, this is a big part of the plot right? That God is uh, taking things that others have meant for evil and he's using it for good. And I think that certainly applies for coronavirus. So um, first thing I want to do is sort of, I don't know, frame the conversation um, at the moment that we're living in. Um, And uh, so for example, um, we are, um, man, this is so strange. So I'm coming to you Um, I had planned on recording this podcast in the church with a couple of other people from our team. I was really excited for that. But just just today, uh, we received the sort of shelter-in-place guideline from Governor Kate Brown, which means that we're all um, restricted to just being at our home. So I set up a little makeshift office in essentially what is a camper trailer <laughs> on the property that we live on, and um, it's actually working out quite nicely. I'm just in a, I don't know, probably 7 by 14 or so foot camper trailer and there's like um you know camping supplies all around me and like some s'mores supplies over there and um not at all what i had expected for my day but um here we are um dealing with 
the very real effects of COVID-19. And I sort of hesitate to, to give you any sort of numbers or data because I know that as soon as I start talking about that, um, in two to three days, it's going to be completely obsolete because this is an ongoing saga, this unfolding as we speak. And every day we're learning so much about this virus, who it's impacting the most, what, what potential impact it may have on our economy long term. And of course, we're just experiencing all kinds of things like we haven't been able to gather the ways that we normally do. And I've so missed that, um, as, I sh- as I'm sure you have as well. Even had to kind of encourage communities not to get together in the same way that they normally do. So this is a brand new thing. I don't think any of us have experienced anything quite like this. Of course, there have been all kinds of crises throughout the history of the world, including pandemics. And we actually get to talk a little bit about that throughout this series of podcasts, because there are other examples that we can pull from and how God's people responded in those moments. But in terms of in our lifetime, I mean, I was talking with my dad the other day, who's turning 70 next year, and he can't recall anything that's remotely close to COVID-19. And so this is definitely a really unique cultural moment that we're living in. But the first thing that I want to sort of explore with you guys is how crisis and crises like these are often a catalyst for cultural change, right? So we live in this secular moment. We live in an affluent community uh, we've experienced sort of the the height or the ideal of Western progress. Um, and we've also kind of gone through like a deconstruction around spirituality and Christianity and the existence of God even. And so we live in this really unique moment where it would take a cataclysmic event or pandemic, if you will, to really sort of shake up the whole gumball machine and get us thinking in a new way about the world that we live in, ask bigger questions, reprioritize. And guess what? I think we're in that moment right now. Secularism, by the way, cannot offer hope to, <laughs> can't offer hope in the same way that awakening to the gospel can, that in a way that the, 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 that the gospel about Jesus can. Secularism uh, is essentially um, failing our community in a big way. And for so many people who've anchored their hope in the secular gospel that do whatever it is that makes you happy, go out and live a productive, successful life, and you'll pretty much live um, in this sort of Western utopia. That has sort of come crumbling to the ground in a way right now. And of course, there's going to be rebuilding, and um, we actually don't have any sort of a doomsday uh, idea or sense about this crisis necessarily, but we definitely believe that there is a lot that's changing underneath our feet at the very moment. My, My point to you is simple. There's all kinds of way better qualified people that sort of talk about the nuances of the sociological things that are happening. But what I want to say is that the crisis, like the one that we're in, is often a catalyst for cultural change. So, for example, I've already seen some change happening in the church, which I am so, dare I say, happy about. And by no means am I saying I'm happy about the pandemic that's wreaking havoc in our community and um, is costing a number of people their jobs and, of course, the loss of life and all of that. But what I am saying is that 
this um, crisis has already begun to woken up, wake up a half-asleep church. In the West, we've sort of been dealing with a contemporary consumerist church in the West for a really long time that's really uh, been one of those things, if you've been following along with the story of Riverbend, that we've sort of been grappling with. We even believe that this has been like a spiritual stronghold of sort of apathy and uh, half-asleepness, if you will, which is probably not even a word, but I'm making it up as we go here. Um, And so because the church has kind of been lulled to sleep in a way, because we've just had um, cultural comforts and this world of consumerism, I think the COVID crisis has caused us to think deeply about what church really is meant to be about. And then, of course, um, a deconstruction of the ways in which we normally practice church. And so I'm starting to see a hunger again in the people of Jesus. I'm starting to see a sense of belonging, a sense of uh, hunger and passion, which I haven't seen in a while, and I'm so, so happy about it. In fact, I was as I was um, thinking about how to frame this in a biblical way, the scripture that popped into my mind was Psalm chapter 27 and verse 4, which if you have in your Bible, feel free to open and look with me there. So Psalm chapter 27 is written by David, King David, in a time in his life when he was being pursued by a lot of enemies, um, at a time in his life when he had a lot of people who hated him. His uh, Things were sort of on the brink in the sense that um, uh, a lot of things were held in the balance. Um, and he was, um, yeah, going going to war yet again. And so here David is in Psalm 27, and he is uh, remarking to the Lord or crying out to the Lord about his situation and in his circumstance. And then uh, in verse 4, one of my favorite verses in all the Psalms right now, One thing I have asked from the Lord, and this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temples. And he says, For the day of trouble he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and send me high upon a rock. Now I wish we had time for all of the sort of the exegesis here and explore some of the nuances of this poem or this song. But essentially what David is saying is that, you know, I'm living in this moment when fear surrounds me and trouble surrounds me. But there is only one thing that matters. I am catalyzed for um, the presence of God. There's one thing only that I want, and it's to be with God and to enjoy his presence, to be with him. And I think that that sort of thing is beginning to happen. I was just having a conversation with a friend right before I started recording this podcast who said that his priorities were being realigned and that he noticed some of the things that he had been worried about before this crisis ever started are now seem so petty by comparison. Now he's facing much larger <laughs> implications for his business and worries for uh, his family and and the, and the life that they're leading and he's got a lot of people in his life who have um, who are in these vulnerable categories but he is filled with confidence and faith and he says the first thing that I do every morning and when I look at the news is I just turn to the Lord and I ask him to come with power and 
So I'm starting to see that happen, not just in the lives of individuals, but that's happening collectively. And as that happens collectively, it's starting to rekindle a hunger and a passion for God that we have, quite frankly, desperately needed in the Western church. Another uh, scripture that right after Solomon, who's David's son, builds a temple and consecrates it, prays for God's presence to come. Um, this is what God. This is how God responds to Solomon. Speaks to Solomon in this prophetic way. If my people, recalled by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. And I think that there have been so many preachers and Christian leaders throughout the decades who've been communicating this message of wake up Western church, hunger after God again, and um, make him the one thing that you seek and that you are after. But I think that this moment, we're starting to hear this with fresh ears, and we're starting to hear this with a fresh sense of urgency. Um, And frankly, I think we've needed that for a long time. So as we talk about how we are responding to this crisis, both within the church as we sort of uh, work it out for ourselves, we also have this responsibility to sort of look outward and to look at the larger um, culture, the larger global community, and maybe most importantly, just our immediate neighbors and our friends, our coworkers here in Central Oregon, who we love dearly, how we respond will actually be instructive to them, maybe even catalytic to them in coming to Jesus. So we have a response. Our response here, I think, is a great opportunity to be culture shaping. Again, we're living in this world where secularism and the secular story has been failing us, and now even more so in the wake of COVID-19. And so we have this, this, this the tides are, are changing, and the kingdom of secularism is sort of crumbling. And when one kingdom falls, another kingdom comes to take its place. And I believe that this is a moment that God wants to come with power in our generation and in our community and uh, just take ground for the kingdom of God. So how we lead or how we respond will lead the world towards an enduring hope. So we have this um, opportunity, you have an opportunity to lead the people in your immediate sphere towards an enduring hope. And here's how I propose that we do that I want to tell you a story. So there is one time several years ago now. Actually, I think this was like right before we had Isabel. So this must have been about eight years ago now. Um, I was mountain climbing with my friend Stan, and we were climbing up Mount Washington. So to give you a little bit of an idea, I'm not that hardcore before you start <laughs> thinking that I'm like an avid rock climber or anything like that. I'm I'm actually not. I'm sort of a novice. I love the mountains. I love uh, climbing. I love, in particular, um, just summiting these mountains here in, in the Cascades, but um, I'm very much a novice. And uh, But my friend Stan has been climbing for decades in uh, all over, really, but in particular here in the Central Oregon Cascades. So we're climbing Mount Washington, and if you're familiar with Mount Washington at all, the rock quality is just awful. It's just, it's just, it's just terrible. They call them souvenir handholds. When you go to grab onto a rock, uh, and put some weight on it, the first thing that happens is it starts to 
crumble and come loose and it just peels away from the rock. And so, in fact, if uh, Stephen Desch, if you're listening to this, you know firsthand how a precarious Mount Washington can be. Stephen, if you don't know, uh, was is a friend of ours. He's part of Riverman Church. And he actually fell on Mount Washington last summer, the last fall perhaps, and fell 40 feet and shattered his pelvis and like a boss hiked out and somehow made it all the way like eight hours later to St. Charles. Just an incredible story of resilience, perseverance, but also just the presence of God rescuing him. And now he and his wife, Jess, are about to have their firstborn, which is just beautiful. Uh, So anyways, I'm climbing Mount Washington with my buddy Stan, and I'm on this sort of exposed pitch, probably no more than 20 to 30 feet above um, the ground, but it's very exposed. It's very windy, and I've realized that I've gotten in my uh, got myself into a situation where can't really climb up too well, can't really climb down too well. Everything that I'm holding on to is just loose, crumbly rock. And if you've ever been climbing in a situation like that, and you're not, and you're like me, and you're a novice, the first thing that comes into your mind is fear. It's so anxiety producing. And that fear of heights, that fear of falling, that fear of death just began to come over me. And I didn't have a full-blown panic attack, but I was definitely not in a good way. And um, I don't know, one to two minutes, I'm just basically scrambling to find a foothold that I can actually put some weight on. And my friend Stan was, I won't forget, he was like probably 10 or 15 feet above me and to the right a little bit on this pitch and I was so nervous he could see I was so nervous and he just made eye contact with me and he said Andrew look at me and I could see in his eyes not only was he calm he was having a great day on the mountain and he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that we had what it took to get up and out and so he said I just want you to look at me and I just want you to focus on making one move and he just guided me through this entire pitch, and I slowly but surely made it up and out. We crested and summited and made it down safely. But the thing that so struck me about that experience and that encounter is that Stan knew exactly what I needed in that moment. He knew I needed someone who was at peace, who was calm, who knew what to do, knew how to respond in this sort of a situation, and was able to lead me and guide me through it. And it was something about his eyes and his countenance that gave me the confidence to start making some moves up Mount Washington. Um, And I I share that story with you because I think that in, in in a story sort of epitomizes the Christian response to this crisis. We've never experienced anything quite like this before, it's not like we're world leaders necessarily in, in the realm of medicine. I know some of you work in the medical field and you guys are um, doing incredible work. But for the most of us, we're just average people who are living in the same anxious system that the entire world is living in at the moment. We're all human. We're all susceptible to the same stuff, to the same virus. And yet at the same time, we have an enduring hope in Jesus. And we have um, a, a way of dealing with anxiety and fear that's unlike anything else that the world has on offer. 
And so we can be this sort of non-anxious, filled with peace and confidence presence in an anxious system. And as we do that, we can essentially have the countenance that Stan had for me in while we were climbing Mount Washington, have this countenance of, of inner strength and inner peace in a moment where the whole world is kind of going frantic. So Jesus, when he rose from the dead, the first thing he did was appear to his apostles in John chapter 20, starting in verse 19. He appeared to his disciples who were freaked out, by the way, in the upper room. And uh, just think about, put yourself in the mind of one of the apostles. Um, You had basically been enemy occupied by the Roman Empire, which is known for violence and um, like dehumanizing oppression. And here you are, just this little nation called Israel, and you have very little power to overcome uh, the evil of the Roman Empire. And so you're, you're, you're being oppressed, both physically, but then also religiously. Like you weren't able to practice the, the faith that you had been, had been handed down from your fathers and from your mothers. And all of a sudden, this messianic figure, Jesus, comes onto the scene. And he's saying, hey, the kingdom of God is at hand. And he's preaching with all kinds of authority. And he's um, healing the sick. He's doing all kinds of just incredible things. And then he's saying, oh, and by the way, I, the time has come for the kingdom of God to arrive here on the earth. I'm inaugurating the kingdom. And then uh, he's saying all the right stuff. And so you, as a disciple, you decide you're going to follow after him. And so year, month after month turns into year after year, and you're following after this Jesus who is Messiah, and he's doing everything in such a redemptive and beautiful and loving and compassionate way. Not at all what you'd expected, but it's a really beautiful, redemptive sort of ministry that is about bringing about the kingdom of God, and you're seeing it with your own two eyes. And then Jesus says, we're going to Jerusalem. He's giving them all kinds of clues that this is the moment they've all been waiting for, sort of the crowning or inauguration of the kingdom of God. And Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. What happens? Yeah, he's handed over to the Romans. And he is crucified. And crucifixion was was so dehumanizing. It was about reducing the human to that of a dog, like the value or the worth of of a dog or just an animal. So it was Rome's way of asserting its dominance over his enemies. And so... So you are, if you're a disciple on Friday night or Saturday morning, the, the amount of disillusionment and the amount of fear that's rushing into your body and into your mind and into your psyche is, is it's astronomical. It's what you couldn't have imagined. You're forced to accept the reality that you've backed the wrong guy. And that's essentially... My guess, I mean, we weren't in the room with the disciples, but my guess is this is sort of what they're mulling about on Saturday and early Sunday morning. Where do we go from here? This man who was Messiah, the one that we had been following all along, who we wholeheartedly believed was going to be the one who ushered in the reign of God, the reign of peace on the earth. He is gone. Not only did he not defeat the Romans, he 
he basically went without a fight and was totally wiped out. And then all of a sudden, Sunday morning comes and Jesus arrives. He just appears, the scripture tells us, he appears in the upper room. And this is what the scripture says. John chapter 20, verse 19 When the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. So imagine that. Imagine you are one of those first disciples, convinced you were an early adopter in the kingdom of God, only to have those dreams dashed on Friday and Saturday and early Sunday. And then on Sunday morning, you have Jesus risen from the dead, something that couldn't have even been in their, in their minds as a, as a possibility, even though Jesus said it would happen. He's appearing to them, and the first thing that he says to them is, Peace be with you. Other accounts say, Do not be afraid. Peace be with you. He repeats himself three times, and he breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. So what we have here, brothers and sisters, is the victorious, resurrected Jesus, the all-authority in heaven and on earth Jesus saying, You have my peace. And just imagine what have, would have flooded into the minds and the hearts of those early disciples. That this victory was about so much more than overturning Rome and overturning Caesar Nero, or Caesar Augustus, excuse me, who was Caesar at the time. This was about more than just a physical peace on earth. It was about this pervasive sense of flourishing in every way, emotionally, spiritually, physically, in relationships with self and others and the rest of creation, and of course, first and foremost, with God. And he says, peace be with you. That Hebrew sense of shalom, that everything is as God designed it to be. And so all of a sudden, these people of Jesus, these 12 and probably a few others, are now receiving the shalom that God had in mind for the very beginning. And they are on the front edge of what God is doing in the world. They are the epicenter of what God is doing in the world by first giving them his peace. So if God says the, all, the resurrected, victorious Jesus, the one who did the impossible by walking out of the grave by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the decree of the Father, is saying, you have my peace, then I hope that we can say, you know what? We can too have his peace, or we are meant to have his peace. We're meant to live into his peace. And so that's kind of what hopefully will begin to shape and frame this conversation. We are leading the world towards an enduring hope and the non-anxious, courageous presence that we have and the countenance that we have as the people of Jesus actually begins to pervade our heart. It begins to seep out and spread to the people around us. And soon enough, our courage overcomes other people's fear and they begin to see the way towards real 
peace. And so that's why the first and foremost thing that we must do as the people of Jesus, as we navigate this crisis, is that we need to ourselves be recipients of the peace of Jesus, to abide in the presence of Jesus. I was reading this incredible article that was put together by Andy Crouch, who, if you don't know, is this incredible author, um, and he wrote on coronavirus really early on last week, and this is what he had to say. This means that all of us who have a primary responsibility as leaders, as far as it depends on us, our responsibility is to be well-rested, soaked in prayer and contemplation, free from our personal fear and anxiety. And we need to start and end each day as children of our Heavenly Father, friends of Jesus, and grateful recipients of the Holy Spirit. We need to pray for genuine spiritual authority rooted in the love that casts out fear, to guard and govern our lives as we lead and trust that God will make up what is lacking in our own frail hearts, minds, and bodies. I love that so much. I think that's so instructive for us. The first and foremost thing that we must do as leaders and as humans who follow after Jesus in this crisis in order to model the courageous faith that we need to navigate it and lead people towards an enduring hope is to ourselves be soaked in prayer and contemplation, to be set free from our fear and anxiety. So I imagine how some of you must be experiencing this and hearing this, that you say, yeah, of course, I don't want to live in fear. I don't want to live in anxiety, but I just lost my job. Uh, I just, I, I, I am, I have a weak immune system or I'm elderly or I have a heart problem or I have diabetes or whatever the case may be that makes you more at risk. Or maybe you are concerned about what this might mean. Maybe you're feeling isolated from your community and you're just like, hey, listen, I, I, I get it. I don't want to be living in fear, but what do I do? with this. And the reality is that in the presence of Jesus, the scriptures teach us how to deal with our fear and anxiety. So in in no way do we want you to hear that you should be ashamed of your fear or that we're looking down on you or judging you because you're afraid. No, seriously, the most common command in the scriptures is do not be afraid. But remember, Jesus doesn't just lob that out as a command that no one can reach or no one can hit. He says, let me be with you and let me as the resurrected king impart to you my peace. Live in my peace. Remember, for the first disciples, they went on to live in a world that was filled with crisis for them, right? Each and every single one of them went on, with the exception of John, to be crucified and they experienced all kinds of trouble they were they were beaten they were flogged they were put in prison they were uh, put on trial they were ridiculed all of these things they were part of this minority group this little mini church in a really really hostile world and yet they were living in this peace that Jesus gave them so by no means are we saying to you um, or are we sort of um judging anyone for experiencing fear, anxiety, if you weren't experiencing some of that 
I would be a little bit concerned that you aren't thinking deeply about the situation that we're in, and there has been a little bit of that. But the reality is that with take your fear and your anxiety and your worry and take that with you to the presence of God. God is with you right now. I'm going to work through just some time of prayer here in a second. He's helping you work through your fear and anxiety. So that's point number one. Like, very simply, like, abide in Jesus. That's how we make it through this crisis. That's how you survive this crisis. But more than that, it's about how we lead the world towards an enduring hope. It's by abiding with the Lord. And like I say, we're going to work through a short little rhythm of prayer where we practice that here in a minute. The second thing, though, um, that I want to hopefully reframe this idea of social distancing as actually an opportunity to slow down and enjoy the presence of God. We've been talking a lot in the last year or so about digital distraction and then, of course, about hurry and busyness as ways that sort of conspire against us along with the kingdom of darkness to keep us out of the presence of God or just numb to the presence of God all around us. But this opportunity, this social distancing, self-quarantine is an opportunity for you to slow down. Um, A lot of your meetings have been canceled. A lot of your outings and events and travel have all been canceled. And so now you have a moment or a season to stop, slow down, and pioneer some new habits. Silence and solitude, Sabbath, enjoying the presence of God, And then also reclaiming old practices, maybe things that you sort of lost, like rekindling family connections around the dinner table. All of these things and more are ways that sort of contribute to your courage and faith rising and you becoming like Stan was for me, this non-anxious presence in an an anxious system, excuse me, so that you can be a part of the healing of the world, leading people towards an enduring hope. And so when we pay attention to that, when we really live into that, kind of, again, going full circle back to Psalm chapter 27, where, where the psalmist David tells us that there's all this stuff going on around me, but for me, this is my one thing, the one thing that gets me out of bed in the morning, the one thing that I'm passionate about, the one thing that defines me is that I am chasing after the presence of God. I want to challenge you. This is your moment. This is your opportunity. You're probably not going to get a moment or an opportunity like this ever again in your life to have multiple weeks where you are literally quarantined away from most other people. And um, this is a beautiful opportunity to pioneer these new habits and reclaim some old ones. And then we're going to live from this courageous place. I firmly believe that when you anchor your hope, not in the secular gospel or in the success and comfort and vision of Western culture, just of progress and and the rest of that, but when you anchor your hope in the true King Jesus gospel, and you see Jesus standing there saying, receive my peace, receive my Holy Spirit, that you, maybe not in an instant, but over time, as you habitually come to the presence of God, make yourself aware of his presence, and constantly submit your fears and your anxieties to him, that you are going to grow and uh, cultivate in with, from within yourself a courage and a faith that's not of your own. It's from him. Remember, um, one of my favorite scriptures is from 2 Corinthians 
where Paul says that he asked God three separate times to take his weakness from him. But God said that my power is made perfect in your weakness, and that accompanied this heavenly vision. So I think what God is wanting to do is to pull our eyes off of the temporary sort of vision of, of, of comfort and success in the world around us that's being totally shaken up and reprioritize us and lift our gaze towards heaven, what, what is emerging, the kingdom that is taking hold in the world around us as we move through COVID-19. So we're going to talk a lot in these coming conversations about how we work through anxiety and fear. This is just an overview. I wanted to give you a little bit of hope, a little bit of um, maybe even uh, a, a new paradigm or a new perspective to see COVID-19 as an opportunity to see God's kingdom come to earth. And maybe this is just a time where we find ourselves praying a lot more for revival because we have been bitten by this sense of urgency for the gospel, or we have this hunger for the gospel. And that's great. But maybe, just maybe, we'll see in our own lifetime with our own eyes a mass awakening to the gospel. Either way, time well spent. So let's just take a moment right now, slow our minds down, slow our hearts down. I just kind of came at you with a lot of ideas. I don't know how you're experiencing it. But let's just invite the Holy Spirit to come. And let's have a little bit of silence. And then we'll go through a few rhythms of prayer. And then we'll close. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus. And Jesus, we thank you for sending us into the world with the power of the Holy Spirit. You said we can receive your peace. You said you have forgiven us your spirit. So we want to encounter and experience you in that way right now. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come. Now let's just have about 30 seconds or so of silence where you just become awake to the presence of God all around you. just want to encourage you that by you just even just taking the faith that's required to sit in the presence of God and to quiet your mind and heart, even just this small little gesture of coming towards Him, the Lord is now rising up in you new faith, new courage, new strength. Let's just pray, God, would you bring your peace? You speak your peace over us. You've read it from the scriptures. We believe that it's true for us. We need to receive your peace. Just pray, Holy Spirit, would you come? Just notice how as you begin to pray for God's peace, he sort of slowly begins to remind you who he is, remind you that he's trustworthy, he's faithful, he's in control, That might not look the way that we think it does, and we certainly can't fully understand it or grasp it. 
But we know that you, Jesus, have been given all authority in heaven and earth. So we choose to anchor our hope and our trust in you, knowing that that's what's best for us. Thank you for moving us from a place of fear and worry to a place of hope and trust. Always want to end these times with thanksgiving. So God, we just thank you for you being you, being who you are, making it really clear to us that we are your kids, we are your people. We love you, and we pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, we love you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in to this podcast. Keep an eye out every Tuesday and Thursday. We're going to be coming to you with all kinds of great topics and content. Some of them will be interview style. Some of them will be like this, where it's just me coming to you from my little office on wheels, the little camper trailer. Um, but we also want to um, just mention to if you're not already following us on Instagram or regularly checking our, our website, we encourage you to do that um, because we have so many other great things that are sort of coming down the pike or down the lane, if you will. Um, um, it, it, there are creative ways for you to be sort of proactive and participating in the rhythms of church, even though we're not gathering as we normally do. Again, a lot of creativity and inspiration has been birthed out of this moment where we're not doing our normal thing. And I think that God is actually doing a lot of stuff in it. I would hate for you to miss that. So please be following along on Instagram and Facebook. Um, also keep in mind that you can check us out on the web, Riverbend AJC. AJC.org. All right. Love you guys. Hope you have a great, great day. And in Jesus' name we pray.